Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. In this episode, Pastor Casey teaches on the story of the golden calf at Mount Sinai. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Tonight, uh, we are in part nine of our Exodus series. And uh, yeah, I, I really I really have been digging the series. Um, last week, I, I didn't preach on this, and so it kind of messed up our schedule a little bit. And I actually really like our schedule. Our schedule is really important. Uh, so we got to kind of keep on our schedule. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, how am I going to figure out how to do last week's message to do this week's message? And I got to see it off for next week's message because John Padilla, is he here? Big John is going to be bringing a message next week in this series, and it's really important. So... I've got kind of a tall order today, um, and so uh, basically here's what we're going to do. we got to cover three chapters of material tonight, and so I have a very clever title for tonight's message that'll tell you exactly where we're going. Are you ready? Three chapters in one night. That is the title of our message. We're going to cover three chapters of Exodus in one night, and so this will be a little different. Usually what we do is I'll give you like a five or ten minute recap about what we last saw, like where we are kind of in the narrative of the book, and then we'll launch into a particular text, and we'll usually dive through that text. That's not what we're going to do this time. You're almost going to get like three or four, just kind of depending on what I'm feeling at the moment, kind of mini sermons based on on Exodus 15, 16, and 17. And so hopefully there'll be something in here for everyone, no matter where you are in life, okay? All right, Um, I'm going to pray. And we're going to get out of here by 9 o'clock-ish. All right, or we can start eating at 9 o'clock. 40 minutes, 42 minutes. Never preached a sermon for 42 minutes in my life because I like to talk. Lord, help me. In the name of Jesus, amen? Amen. All right, that's the prayer. Here we go. It's a good prayer. It's probably the most powerful prayer you will ever pray. Lord, help. Okay. Usually when I read uh, through the scriptures, one of the things that I try to do, and I, I try to teach you to do the same thing, is uh, to kind of put yourself in the story. Yeah, that's, that's, it's just, it's, it's a good Bible practice to do. It keeps the material from becoming kind of ethereal, and it kind of makes it a little bit more concrete. And so one of the things that we like to do is put ourselves in the story and figure out what would we feel if we were under these same circumstances? What would we be thinking if we had the same knowledge that they had at the time? And, and it's, it's just helpful. Well, here's the thing. Usually, I got to confess to you, when I read the story, no matter what story it is, no matter what letter in the Bible it is, I usually read it uh, and, and place myself in the story as if I am the very author of the story. I usually read it as if I'm the hero of the story. It's amen. That's right. So when I'm reading the book of Genesis and I'm going through Abraham's life, Usually I view myself as Abraham and I kind of insert myself into the story. Like, what would I do if I'm Abraham? Or if I'm reading through Paul's letters, I insert myself into the story as if I'm Paul. Or uh, Exodus in particular, I'll, re- I'll read it as if I'm Moses. And I'll think, okay, if I'm Moses, how would I be feeling in this moment? Does anybody else do that? You insert yourself as the hero. Okay, um, I, I just want to confess to you, um, over the weeks as I have been studying the book of Exodus, I have realized I am uh, definitely not the hero of this story. When I look through uh, the book of Exodus and I, and I see what Moses is saying and dealing with and doing, um, I, I actually, I'm finding that I don't really identify with Moses if I'm honest. If I'm honest, I, 
I really identify most and I resemble most the very people that Moses was leading, the children of Israel. And it's been very convicting for me the last several weeks. I'm even here uh, during worship. I'm just, I'm, I'm kind of meditating on the word and realizing, oh my gosh, I, I fall so short of the glory of God. Now I realize good theology tells you we all fall short of the glory of God, but it's, it's a different story when it goes from being theology to real revelation. And I'm realizing guys that, that I am so much like the children of Israel. And, um, we're going to talk about what that looks like uh, and, and, and why I think that I, I just really struggle to be like Israel. Um, perhaps you do too. Um, if you find yourself realizing that, that you're probably not Moses in the story, you're probably his terrible followers, um, just know that you're in good company. Cool? Last, uh, last message in the series was titled The Art of Following. And if you remember, the narrative um, was, was kind of exciting. We had officially... Um, gone through the 10 plagues, and Israel finds itself facing impossible circumstances with the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. And we see that, that um, essentially Israel had seen 10 plus major clear miracles from the Lord. And so when they're faced in the Red, with the Red Sea, your, their thought really should be, the logical conclusion is, well, we just saw the angel of death kill the firstborn of everyone who didn't have the blood on the doorpost. We just saw the rest of the 10 plagues. Obviously, God's real, and obviously, God's for us, and obviously, God's, God's going to help us get through this. So he's either going to part the Red Sea, he's going to kill the army, or he's going to build some kind of imaginary bridge, but we are getting across this ocean. That's the logical conclusion, but no. If you remember, Israel doesn't do that. They had, they had just seen the craziest miracles, the kind of miracles that you and I probably will not see in our lifetime. We're not talking a toe grew back or a foot you know, went out this much. We're not talking the pain went from 10 to five. No, those are great and I pray and I love those things. But we're talking like, like the sea turned to blood. Imagine the faith that you would have Imagine the faith that you were supposed to have from getting that. And here's the children of Israel and they're facing the Red Sea. And instead of, of looking at the Red Sea and saying, bring it on, I know my God loves us. I know my God is faithful. I know my God is strong. Instead, what they do is they turn to Moses and they begin to complain. And they begin to accuse Moses and his leadership. And uh, we talked about uh, in that message that, that essentially in the church, we do a really good job of trying to equip you to be a leader. But what we don't typically do is teach you how to be a good follower. And the reality is, oh, you weren't there for that message, were you? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, John. <laughs> Love you, man. Right? But the reality is most of us are going to fall into that latter category. Most of us are probably not going to be the top tier leader in our environment everywhere we go, that everybody is going to be a follower. And it's very difficult to be a follower. And I would even say uh, in, a lot, in a lot of ways, it's harder to follow somebody than it is to lead somebody. And so what we do is we looked at the children of Israel and we took notes about what they did that made them such terrible followers for Moses. And we said, okay, we don't want to do that. We basically want to do everything that they did not do. Well, if you remember the story, God shows up anyway. 
even though they're accusing their leader of having bad motives, even though they are um, accusing God, even though they are grumbling and complaining, even though they have no faith, God's like, I still love you. I'm still gonna give you mercy. And not only that, I'm still gonna show up in dramatic and dynamic ways and I'm gonna part the Red Sea. Then we ended that sermon off with Israel marching through the Red Sea and the Red Sea collapsing on Pharaoh's army, proving just how faithful he is and how faithless we are sometimes. Remember that? The art of following. That was Exodus uh, 14. Something happens in Exodus 15 that I want to talk about. And it's the kind of thing I want you to do. I want you to put yourself in the story. Okay? Exodus 15, I'm not going to preach the whole message on it. I'm just going to take a few minutes. How many of you are worshipers in a musical capacity in this room? Raise it, raise it nice and loud, nice and high. Okay, how many of you wish you could be, but the Lord has not given you that gifting? Yeah, hey, hey, make a joyful noise, that's us. It's a noise, not a song. Have you ever asked the question as a worshiper, where was the first worship song in the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Like if you're, if you're a worship leader, has it ever occurred to you to ask the question, I wonder what the first song is in the Bible. Well, it's in Exodus 15. And it's fascinating because Israel has just left the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is destroyed in the Red Sea. And they've just witnessed probably the greatest miracle in a series of intense and crazy miracles. And so Exodus 15 opens up with a celebration. And it's beautiful. You can imagine if you put yourself in the story what you must have been feeling in that moment as the last person crossed the walls of the Red Sea and Moses basically throws down the gauntlet and he says, it's time to party. They get out the drink at an appropriate level probably, hopefully, in the name of Jesus. They get out the good food. They start to celebrate. And Exodus 15, man, it is a beautiful celebration unto the Lord, and Moses begins to sing, and it's the first recorded worship song that we have in the Bible. And it paints this picture almost like, anybody ever watched Lord of the Rings? Everybody's a good Christian here? Amen? Okay, if you have not seen Lord of the Rings and you call yourself a Christian, check yourself. Just kidding. But I really am just kidding. But it's just like every Christian loves Lord of the Rings. I don't get it. But I love Lord of the Rings. And you know that scene in Lord of the Rings where they're in, they're in Hobbiton and, and everyone's like celebrating. And I think it's a birthday of in Fellowship of the Ring. I can't remember if it's at the end of them. And they're all celebrating and everyone's like dancing on the tables and it, it's just good. And there's fireworks. Everyone's like happy. That's the, that's, the, that's the image of Exodus 15. It's the greatest celebration. People are pumped. And out of it, the most beautiful worship song erupts from Moses. It says that Miriam would then grab the, the tambourine and, and she would pass it out to all the, all the women around and, and they would begin to sing and dance and shout. And I encourage you, I can't read it the whole thing, but basically most of Exodus 15 is the actual song written out in lyrics. And I encourage you, especially those of you in the room who you feel like there's a calling on your life to do some form of musical worship, go and look at the song. It's beautiful, it's rich, and it's full of heartfelt celebration 
and gratitude as you would be in that moment, amen? Can you imagine what it would have felt like? Let me read to you just a few verses from the song because I think it's, I think it's just really sweet. Moses says, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior and the Lord is his name. And Miriam would grab that tambourine and she'd start to sing uh, a spontaneous song, if you will, saying, sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider, he is hurled into the sea. It's beautiful. What must they have been feeling when they're writing such a deep song of gratitude, celebration, thankfulness? Can you imagine the faith in the room? Just think about that. You know how like sometimes in, in sermons and in, uh, in services, like, like it just kind of pops off in worship? You know what I'm talking about? I don't really know how to describe it other than that, but you can almost just feel the faith and the, the, ex, uh, the, the, uh, the faith and the, I don't know, the, um, the zeal coming from the room and you're like, man, everybody's expectant, everybody's hungry. You know what I'm talking about? Can you imagine what that would have felt like to be there? But as the night wore on, perhaps the drink wore off, Reality hits them. And not three days later, they're hungry and they're thirsty and they have forgotten the very God that they just wrote the song about. In three days, you can read it, Genesis 15, or uh, Exodus 15, the very people of faith and celebration reverted back to their old self once again, and they begin to complain against Moses, complain and grumble against the Lord for they're thirsty. Now, just imagine if you were there in that moment and you've seen everything that's happened and you just had the greatest celebration worship service in the history of the world, you're jazzed. You're in a company of people that are jazzed, but it's only been three days and you're thirsty. Don't you feel like the natural thing to do is be like, oh Lord, I know you love us. You've proven that already. Can you just give us something to drink? Like, doesn't that seem to be like the natural thing to do? That's not what they do. They get angry. They start to complain. They start to accuse. Then Moses goes to the Lord on their behalf. And the Lord says, uh, Lord says, take this branch, just go throw it into the water. He goes, that bitter water that you can't drink, he's like, it'll turn sweet and you guys can drink it. And it's really sweet, but I want to read to you. Here's what they say uh, when they complain to Moses, okay? So this is, this is three, this is the Bible says three days after that celebration that we just painted the beautiful picture of. You ready? This is what they say. Well, where is God now? This is essentially what they start to say. What is the point of bringing us out here, Moses? Seems like God's abandoned us now. It was great then, but where's God now? And God doesn't smite them, doesn't pour out judgment on them, doesn't get angry. It's kind. He says, take the branch, throw it in the water. It'll turn sweet. You'll have some water. 
You have something to drink. So Moses does that very thing. And then God would lead them to a place called Elam, where they would find 12 springs of water and I think it's like 70 bushes of uh, dates. God's good. Okay? Now, why do I say that? If you remember the message, uh, was it the art of following message, that was the second time we had seen Israel start to complain against the Lord. Remember that? And I made a big point of pointing that out. I said, this is now going to become a pattern. We saw it earlier in Exodus, but it was only one time. Then last week we saw it again, and it was the second time in Exodus 14. Now we're seeing it for the third time. Third time. Then we get chapter 16. And we see that the gratitude and celebration of these 12 springs and 70 date bushes is is as short-lived as the gratitude over splitting the Red Sea. And for the fourth time, in just 45 days of being set free from the nation of Israel, they begin to complain against the Lord again. Let me read to you what they said. This is Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. The whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, what that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us, this whole assembly with hunger. So you get this group of people, they've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. And after every miracle comes a big stint of complaining and grumbling. They just got led to 12 springs, 70 date bushes. It's beautiful. They're on a high, a faith high. They're like, this is great. I love the Lord. He's awesome. He's always providing. He's always faithful. And then just another few short days later, they're hungry and they're thirsty and they make accusations again. They're like, dude, it would have been better for us to live in Egypt because at least there we might've died, but we died with a belly full of meat. We would have died with bread. At least our bellies were full. They had three hots in a cot. If you've ever been to jail, that's what we called it. You get three hots in a cot, three hot meals in a cot. It's better than, it's better than what it is. It's better than being homeless. It's better than wandering in the desert. Just a few short days, they start to accuse Moses again. And they say, you brought us out here to kill us. Remember, that was the same thing that he said, or that they said back in Exodus 14. Remember the, remember the little snarky accusation they make against Moses? Have you brought us out into the wilderness because there wasn't enough land for our death plots? It's literally what they said. They're like, there wasn't enough land in Egypt, huh? You just had to bring us out here so we could die. And they're back to doing it again. And guys, in this story, I'm not Moses. I'm Israel. Guys, if I'm, if I'm honest, perhaps if you're honest, I don't know, maybe you're better than my, me, that's totally possible, legit. I, I get these spiritual highs. 
God comes through in a big way, and I write the Exodus 15 worship song, and it is full of celebration and good theology, and it's rich. It's vibrant. It's so right in the moment, and it's so genuine in the moment. And I'm like, praise God, he set me free. He's, he's, he's done the impossible for me, and I start to declare the faithfulness of God. And just a few short days later, I forget, and I immediately go into unbelief. And the next Red Sea presents itself, and I'm going, nah, there's no way. How many of you guys live in that pattern? Spiritual high when we're here in church. Spiritual high in the prayer room. Spiritual high after God just answered one of your prayers and then just a few short days later, you're like completely back to your old self. That's the children of Israel. And that shouldn't comfort us. That shouldn't make you go, oh, okay, I'm not crazy right? Because it doesn't end well for the children of Israel. As a matter of fact, here's why I'm so clear about pointing out these aspects of them complaining over and over and over again, because in a few chapters and in a few weeks, we're going to hit Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is great. God's going to show up on the mountain. This is going to be awesome. He's going to invite everyone to come up and people are going to be like, no, I don't really want to come up. He's a little scary. And God gives them this amazing covenant but we see something's happening down below the mountain. Moses had been gone too long. And obviously their attention span for the Lord is not very long. Three days and they're already losing faith. Moses has gone about a month and they're like, oh yeah, he's dead, God's not real. And they begin to create a golden calf. Remember they look at Aaron, we're gonna talk about it more in depth, but they look at Aaron and they're like, hey, since our God's not real, we need something to worship. So Aaron, help us out here. And Aaron, being the faithful high priest that he is, I get no idea why he becomes the high priest, right? Being the faithful high priest he is, says, okay, give me all your jewelry. Give me all your gold. I'm gonna melt it all. We're gonna turn it into a calf, a, a big cow, because why not? We'll worship that. That'll be our God. And that's what they do. And God does something that seems really, really, really harsh. Upon that incident, God tells Moses, I'm gonna kill them. No, 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 listen, you don't understand. Moses, it's better this way. He says they're obstinate and hard-hearted. He says, hey, listen, they have no faith, Moses. And if I am gonna make good to my promise on you, it's going to require that we start over. And so I've got to kill this generation. And then I tell you what, we'll start over with you. We'll, do, we'll make you like Abraham. We'll restart this whole bad boy. And then we will get you into the promised land. And if you don't know the whole story, it seems a little harsh. They mess up one time. It's a pretty big sin, but I mean, let's be real. We've all had some pretty big blunders. I haven't quite smelted a bunch of gold into an altar to bow down and worship to it, but I metaphorically certainly have, right? And we're like, wait a second, God, that seems really hard. What do you mean you should kill them first? And then remember Moses is like, no, Lord, don't kill them. And he's like, fine, have it your way. And then Moses and that same people, they don't make it into the promised land because of unbelief. God leads them to the promised land and they see and they're like, eh, the people are too big. We can't take this land. 
and they die in the wilderness after wandering for 40 years. Now, that's, that's the long narrative. We'll, we'll hit that as we go. But it is really important because I want you to see that the golden calf incident didn't start with a golden calf. The golden calf incident starts when they're facing the Red Sea and they immediately begin to complain. And it's further solidified when they're thirsty just three days later after Exodus 15. And they start to grumble against the Lord and they start to grumble against Moses and they start to accuse God and accuse Moses of poor leadership. And now we're here in Exodus 16 and this is their fourth time and we're gonna see it again where they're gonna do it a fifth time. Isn't that crazy? But if you don't see that narrative and you don't see that pattern, the golden calf incident kind of comes out of nowhere and God's response is a little ridiculous. But you realize, guys, it doesn't start with throwing all of your gold into a a smelting pot and then creating an altar and saying, I'm gonna bow down and worship this idol. That's not where it starts. It starts with a heart of complaining and grumbling. You may say, well, listen, I, I will never bow down and worship a golden calf. That's ridiculous. And I would say to you, no, but you sure do complain a lot. Yeah? I'm not accusing you. I'm just telling you this is what the Lord's showing me. I read this, I'm like, Lord, I would never do that. And he's like, yeah, I don't you say that. But you sure do complain a lot, Casey. I'm going, well, I mean, that's, that's hardly the same. And he's like, yeah, but if you, if you leave this unchecked, if you, if you leave this pattern of spiritual high to I've, you know, all but losing faith and I, I'm forgetting my God and forgetting the faithfulness of God. If you, if, you, if you don't fix this pattern, you end up like the children of Israel. And you won't even realize it. It's stunning. So they say it would have been better for us to live in Egypt, or at least we could have died with full bellies and comfort. And uh, after verse three in chapter 16, Moses says something that I think is so insightful and we're gonna camp on for just a moment. This is uh, chapter 16, verses six through eight. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, at evening, you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, when evening hits, you're gonna remember who God really is. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord. Then what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, this will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. Key in on that. The Lord hears your grumblings that you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, that is me and Aaron, but against the Lord. So here's the thing. At this point, the nation of Israel has only complained about Moses to Moses, as probably everybody else in the camp, right? Because they're humans, right? And they've only complained. The subject of their complaint has been Leadership, Moses and Aaron, and how they're doing things. 
And even the beginning verses of 16, they're like, hey, Moses, you brought us out of Egypt so that we could die here. Moses is the central figure. But remember, Moses answers and he says, hey, stop complaining against the Lord. And that should like, that should cause us to like stop in our tracks for a second. That would be like this. Peter, you're angry at me. I'm your leader. And you're coming at me and you're like, I can't believe you would leave me to do this. You are such a terrible leader. I've told all of my friends, man, you are awful. I've joined this little, this little, I hate Casey club. And when you are not fit for leadership and me looking at you and being like, dude, I was talking to the Lord. He said, you should probably stop talking about him like that. Like that's what just took place here in the Bible. And it should cause us to be like, wait a second, what? Here's the idea. All of our complaining is not to a person, about a person, about a subject, or about a circumstance. All of our complaining is complaining about the Lord. The sin of complaint. I want to give you a second to close your eyes. And I want you to be honest with yourself and honest with the Lord for just a moment. Think about how often you complain. Now, here's the thing. Keep your eyes closed. You may say, well, I don't complain. Because you think complain equals whine. Complaining doesn't always look like whining. Sometimes there's a more adult version. Sometimes there's a more mature looking version and we might call it excuse making, blaming, venting, or processing. How often do you complain? Okay, you can open your eyes. I want to give you a principle that I reminded you of back in the Genesis series, but it is vitally applicable to us today. God is sovereign and leads everything that you do. He's sovereign. He's the Lord over all. He controls everything. Now, here's the thing. That's going to mess you up a little bit. Because at the same time as he is sovereign, he's given us free will. And somehow he's able to take all of our free will and all of our free choices and then blend them together with his sovereignty and work out everything for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But there is not one person in your life, there is not one circumstance in your life that has not passed through the sovereign hands of God. Not one. That means the most painful things that have happened in your life passed through the sovereign hands of the Lord. The most wonderful things that have happened in your life have passed through the sovereign hands of the Lord. Everything that happens in your life, God allowed it to. Now, please do not conflate God allowing something to hit your life versus God approving something. Just because somebody sins against you and the Lord allows it to happen does not mean the Lord approves of that person sinning against you. It's this weird, kind of hard to understand, hard to grapple with mystery that he's not gonna violate your free will and he's not gonna violate their free will. 
But what he is gonna do is he is going to insert his sovereignty and he promises to make it worth it for those of us who are born again. And so, listen, that, that, that uh, thought should shake everything in you. That should cause you to look at everything in your life through a different lens. Some of you, you have real struggles with your mom and dad. The Lord chose your mom and dad. The Lord chose your gender. The Lord chose your race. The Lord chose the social class that you were born in. The Lord chose the the school that you would go to and the job that you would find and the church that you would be a part of and the leadership that you would be under. All of it, all of it, none of it has caught God off guard. Never once did something hit your life that he was like, dang, I didn't see that coming. Never. Now again, please do not assume that that means because he allows it, that he approves of it. It grieves his heart when the free will of man sins against another. He hates it, but he allows it. And he allows it because he wants to make it worth it for you and for me. And here's the idea. When you and I are complaining about a person or a situation or a very real valid pain point in your life, and you're sitting there and you're just licking your wounds and you're seeing yourself as the victim, you're not a victim. When you're angry at your leader or your boss or your mom or your dad, even if they did something that should have made you angry, even if they did the most atrocious sin and you begin to go around and complain and tell everybody about it and start to get the pity party going. What happens is you forget that what you're actually doing is complaining about the sovereignty of God. What you're actually doing is saying, Lord, I don't approve of the way that you're handling your sovereignty. I would do it differently if I were you. So if you don't have enough money, and you begin to complain that it's the system or you, it's your boss or it's capitalism or it's socialism or it's whatever, what you're actually complaining against. What you're really saying is, Lord, you haven't given me enough. And it should shake us. Everything, every opportunity, every, every circumstance in our life is passed through the sovereign hands of the Lord. And so that means you and I as Christians, we have to then wrestle with God and go, okay, why did you allow this in my life? What is it you're trying to do? What are you trying to show me? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to instill in me? I know that everything you do is, is out of goodness and out of love. I know that everything you do is you're trying to invite me into intimacy and you're trying to help me. You're trying to set me up for success a billion years from now. I get that, but what is it, God? And it takes 
fervency in prayer and it takes you wrestling and fasting and going, okay, God, I have to know because I know theologically that you are sovereign. So therefore you have a purpose behind this. Then that purpose isn't to derail me. That purpose isn't to erode my faith. That purpose has to be something good, something eternal. And it could be a million things, guys. I don't know what it is. Every situation is different for every person. But the, the tendency, man, if when I, I did that little exercise, I, I closed my eyes and I said, okay, Lord, how often do I spend complaining? Again, I would have never called it complaining. My big thing, I would have called it processing. I got to process with 20 people to make sure you know that my, my heart's good. Spread venom. Right? How often do I do that? I did not like the answer. Let me read to you. Uh, let me read to you uh, Philippians two fourteen. It's it's a verse that I, I quote often because it's no, it's powerful. It says, "Do all things without grumbling or complaining." Okay, there's your command: do all things without grumbling or complaining. It does not say do most things without grumbling or complaining. It does not say do godly things without grumbling or complaining. It says, do all things, endure all things without grumbling or complaining so that you, get this, oh, so that you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul literally just dropped, dropped the flipping gauntlet on us. Here's what he just said. Hey, how do you know you're not in the crooked and perverse generation? Because you don't complain. Let's reverse engineer that. If you complain and you're grumbling, he says, yeah, you're part, not of the children of God. He goes, you're part of a per perverse and crooked generation. He says, yeah, the complaining issue, it's deep-seated. It's not just this like second-tier sin issue. It's not like as long as you're looking at pornography or, and as long as you're not you know, uh, committing adultery, as long as you're not doing these big sins, but you got a little complaining on the side that you're okay, you're pretty well sanctified. He goes, listen, if you live a lifestyle of grumbling and complaining, he goes, you're no longer, this was it, blameless and innocent. He says, you want to prove to be blameless and innocent, stop complaining. And I think that's the idea because at the heart, guys, of complaining is discontentment with God. When we bring our complaint, not before the Lord, that's a very appropriate thing to do. But to one another, what we're actually doing is we're not trying to get rid of that complaint. If we're honest, what we're trying to do is add a little fuel source and validate that complaint. When we do that, what we're really saying is, God, I am discontent with the situation that you have allowed in my life. Your leadership is not perfect. I would have done it different. And that should shake all of us if we're honest. And again, I want to highlight, if unchecked, this very thing, this spirit of complaint, this unchecked complaining, you may not see the correlation, but it rest assured ends up 
with us staring at the promised land and refusing to enter. Now, let me just take a moment. I am aware of nobody here complaining. I'm realizing as I'm saying this, it sounds like I'm rebuking you. I am totally not rebuking you. I have no idea what's going on in your life. I don't, I don't think we do enough here for you guys to probably complain about us, so I don't think you're probably complaining about us, and I have not heard that anybody's complaining about any kind of leadership or anything here in church. But I know my heart, and I know me, and I know that I am so prone, guys, to complaining, to grumbling, to being discontent with what the Lord has given me rather than being grateful and thankful. So please don't hear me like, I'm not like throwing this at you, like, You've done something wrong. I I don't think that's it at all. Okay. So what's the antidote for complaining? Um, Pray and bless. We should be a people that when we walk into a hopeless situation, we bring hope. We should be a people that when we walk into a situation that that is hard, we make it better. We're the light of the world. Sometimes that means you have to be the light of your own church. Sometimes that means you have to be the light to your Christian friend group totally. But the Bible gives very clear instruction for how we're to speak. Because life and death, the power, the Bible says the power of life and death is in the tongue. If you want to go read about what the Bible says about your speech, go look through the book of James. I'm going to say it's James 2 but it's floating around James 1, 2, 3, and it is powerful. He says, hey, you want to learn to control your body? Control your tongue. He says, your tongue is like a rudder on a ship. And he goes, yeah, it's a small device, sure. But that small little rudder will turn the entire ship and will direct the entire ship. You got self-control problems? It's not a porn problem. It's a words problem. He says, if you, if you control your tongue, he says, to control the tongue is to control the body. And it's just stunning to me. So the Bible has very clear indication for how we are to speak and complaining is not one of them. So some of us, if we're honest, we've been like, hey, um, I just think that when the Bible talks about our language, we probably just shouldn't say the F word. We probably shouldn't say GD. We probably shouldn't gossip. It's more than that. He goes, no, no, no. You can't complain. Now you may say that's a little, that's a little um, mm, intense or perhaps even a little religious, okay? You're not allowed to complain. Christian, brother, sister, you're not allowed to complain. Well, but what about when, nope, do all things without grumbling or complaining? Any more than you're not allowed to sleep around, you're not allowed to complain or grumble. Let that sink in. So as vigilant as you are about your purity, be that vigilant about your language. And when an opportunity comes to rally the troops to your cause, when an opportunity comes to complain in the process, here's what I will tell you. Be diligent. Now, on the same side as that token, let me just balance this out a little bit. It is appropriate to process with some people. Sometimes you do need a chance to bounce some things off, but you need to make sure that who you're processing, whatever that situation is, has no skin in the game, has no bias, and has their their eyes set on the Lord. 
my, my favorite person to process with. It's not my wife. It's not uh, one of my closest friends or in my Wellspring group. My favorite person to process with is Pastor Christopher because he's the safest one I know. Because you have any idea how many times I've been thinking about something and I've just gone to kind of complain a little bit. And he's like, hey, dude, you need to check yourself. That's not of the Lord. That is the kind of person that we need to process and vent to. That is not complaining. That's accountability. Okay? Me going to the same people who have the same issue and continually bringing that up over and over and over again, that's not processing. Cool? All right. That's, um, well, dang. I'm 43 minutes in, about 42 minutes sermon. Let me just land the plane uh, with the rest of 16. So they complain against the Lord, and the Lord says, I'm going to provide manna in the morning. It's important for you to know, manna in the morning, which is kind of like this, um, it, it comes in the form of dew on the ground, and um, it tastes like honey wafers, and, and it's just kind of like this weird stuff. I don't really know what it looks like. Just use your imagination, right? They peel it up off the ground every morning. They're given very specific instructions. Don't leave any leftover for the day because the next day it's going to rot. And it's, and it's kind of um, the idea that it's trying to get at is you can't live off of yesterday's revelation. You can't live off yesterday's bread. Okay? Yeah, I know. That could have preached a long time, but I'm not going to do it. Let it sit. But then he says, on the sixth day, I want you to gather double the bread that you would because I want you to keep the Sabbath, which is interesting. Right? So you have, hey, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, don't gather more than you need and don't leave any left over. But on, su- on Saturday, he's like, I want you to gather double because I don't want you to do anything on Sunday. And it's, and it's a reminder to keep the Sabbath. Now, how many of you are familiar with the Sabbath? Okay. This is going to be later solidified in the Ten Commandments. We're going to get there in a few weeks. But how many of you would say that the Sabbath command is this? Make sure you don't work on the seventh day. It's pretty easy, right? That's not the, that's not the Sabbath command. The Sabbath command is you're going to work for six days and you're going to rest on the seventh. Okay? So many of us, we get so consumed, and I'm going to get off my soapbox here in a second. We get so consumed with this concept of rest that we forget that we only get the blessing of rest after six days of hard labor. So all of the ones in the room, I bless you in the name of Jesus with a hard work ethic because God says, and he repeats it in the command. He goes, I want you to work for six days, but on the seventh, I don't want you to, I don't want you to work. So it's a, it's a two-part commandment, work and rest. Don't just rest. Cool? All right. Now, manna in the morning, and then he would give them quail in the evening. And then God would begin to lead his people through the desert by a um, by a fire by night. And they would see this visible fire and they would follow that fire. I have no idea what that, was, what that would have looked like. And then a cloud by day. So what you're finding is that Moses, though he is the leader, is not actually the leader. It's God who's leading. And then we're going to get to chapter 17. And I'm just going to tee it up for you, John, next week. Chapter 17 is a, is a familiar passage for most of you. It's the passage where um, they, uh, Moses is fighting, Moses and the children of Israel, they're fighting a man named uh, Amalek. And he has to hold up his staff 
and he has to take a posture of worship. And as long as his hands are up, they win the battle. But if his hands go down, they lose the battle. And so he has Aaron come to his left side and her to his right side to lift up his hands so that the battle is won. That's what John's preaching on next week. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.